If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Um, I've been gone for a couple of weeks, so I'm Pastor Randy. I'm back. Um, in, case, uh, in case I didn't look overly familiar, uh, that's, that's who I am. And uh, we are making our way through uh, the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we're virtually always going through a book in the Bible on uh, Sunday morning and usually in the New Testament. And we're almost, just about exactly, in fact, halfway through the book of Mark. And in a moment, we'll stand and read that together. But just a, um, just a word about, you know, this fall Sunday school class, you know, we, we know the book of Revelation. Most Americans, when they think of the book of Revelation, they think, ah, the rapture. Well, we're finally at the text this morning where the single verse in the book of Revelation that might refer to the rapture is coming up uh, for discussion. So we'll be deciding that question in about 10 minutes um, as part of that lesson uh, this morning. But no, honestly, we really are coming across the single verse in the book of Revelation. Now, it changes the way that you read a lot of the book of Revelation, virtually everything from verses Six to nine, or chapter six to nineteen, depending on what you think Revelation three ten means, and so we're gonna we're gonna tackle that in Sunday school this morning. So just just to let you know, let's stand together. Mark eight twenty seven to thirty. Mark eight twenty seven to thirty. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we are often in a place where we wonder. Though it is true, as we sang just a few minutes ago, that you never fail us. It's not true that we don't often feel like you are failing us and cry out alongside David in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget us forever? For we often feel that our circumstances are such that we wonder what you could be thinking 
what your plan could be. It's certainly not our plan. It's disappointing to us, shocking to us. You often seem to have hidden your face from us. We wonder how long you will leave us to be taking counsel with our own souls and asking ourselves whether we're going to make it and whether or not we can make any sense of what's going on in our lives. For we find often sorrow in our hearts and sorrow that lasts all day long. We wonder how long our enemies will be able to rise up against us with apparent success. And so we ask that you would consider us and consider our situation and that you would answer us, O Lord our God, and that you would cause light to enlighten our eyes that we would see and find hope and rest in you, lest we sleep like death itself, lest our enemies are able to say that they have completely finished us off, lest they rejoice on and on when they see that we have stumbled. And we often stumble. So, Lord, we ask that as with David in Psalm 13, that you would enable us to be those who trust in your steadfast love, that you would enable us to be those who rejoice in our hearts, in your salvation. And that we would say in the end, as we sang a couple of songs ago, that we do sing to you because we see overall and in the end and ultimately that you have done bountifully with us in Christ, as individuals, as a church, we could say the same as a nation this Veterans Day weekend, as many who serve this nation are remembered, whose lives were given in various ways, some of them completely spent, some here, this day, who served our country faithfully, We thank you, Lord, for the service of such people. And thank you that we live in a nation that honors such people. For it is through, often, such people that you have indeed dealt bountifully with us. And so, Lord, we do thank you on this day uh, for our veterans and pray your blessing upon them and their families 
particularly on this weekend as our nation pauses to honor them and remember them. Come now and enable us to hear your voice uh, in Mark chapter 8. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Our text for this morning certainly makes uh, the commentator, the New Testament scholar, uh, Rodney Decker's point very nicely. I've probably mentioned uh, Rodney Decker's words more than 20 times now since we started Mark's gospel, but they're, they're really helpful in that Decker thought it would be good in the intro to his little commentary on, uh, on, on Mark to say, to summarize in like a single sentence. So what is the gospel of Mark really about? And you remember, here was his summary. Mark's purpose is related to discipleship. He works it out paragraph by paragraph by challenging his readers to answer two intertwined questions. Who is Jesus? And what does he expect from those who follow him? Now that Decker got that first question right is really plain from our text for this morning, right? Because now, it's not just Mark and his gospel that raises this question, it's Jesus himself. Well, taking a little trip, says, asks of his disciples the very question that Decker says the gospel of Mark is about. Who do people say that I am? And then personalizes a second time around. Who do you say that I am? But it's that question. Who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Now this is not really a a big question in our cultural context, right? Um... Our big questions are like, okay, so who are you more sympathetic with in what's going on in the Middle East right now? Are you more sympathetic with Israel or the Palestinians? That's one of our cultural questions. What do you think of former President Trump? That's one of our cultural questions. What do you think of President Biden? That's one of our cultural questions. Uh, And those are the sorts of questions that if you read the paper, if you are still an old person who watches the news, but even if you're a young person and you go online, those are the sorts of questions that are being uh, dealt with and debated uh, back and forth. And it seems in our cultural con- context that a question about Jesus is sort of a little intramural question 
among, you know, this subgroup of evangelical people who everybody understands are a little off. Um, And it's the kind of question that they might think is important. Uh, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Now, again, it, it does seem, in our culture, it's, it's an odd question. It seems somehow strangely less relevant of a question than who do you think is going to make it to the Super Bowl this year? I mean, who's most likely? We have whole channels uh, on television that discuss that. On and on and on and on and on and on and on. Uh, those really do seem to be uh, big questions to us. But in our text, this text means to be warning, not just believers, but the world at large. You know, the actual central questions. A, maybe the greatest question of the present generation is what it's always been for the last 2,000 years in the world. Who is Jesus? Listen again to how Mark puts it. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea, Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So our outline is simply going to be the, his, Jesus' two questions and then a third question that is implied by those. So who do people say that I am? First point. Who do you say that I am? Second point. And why does this question matter so much within the context of the New Testament's answer? So that's our outline for this morning. Our first question then. Who do men say that I am? And Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. So here we find Jesus walking to a relatively remote city. In the the Middle East, there's only one mountain, really, of any great size. And it's quite a bit to the north of the Sea of Galilee. It's Mount Hermon. And Caesarea Philippi is up toward Mount Hermon. And so from the main, where where Jesus' main ministry and where most of what's going on in the Gospels has taken place, suddenly we find Jesus taking the disciples north of that by a ways, uh, which sort of highlights the notion that we made note of about three weeks ago or so, four weeks ago maybe, that at this point in the Gospel, the Gospel of Mark starts to shift from Jesus' public ministry 
more to his private ministry with his disciples. Well, this little move would, would, be, would fit in with that and indicate that, that he's, he's taking them, he's taking them to a relatively remote place, almost certainly a relatively, as they say, Hellenistic or, or pagan city. Uh, until very recently at the time of Jesus, this city was called Panea. Um, little Greek word pan uh, simply means all. Uh, and so this was a, a, a town that had previously uh, probably been quite a, a center of Gentile pagan worship, a, a worship of a god that sort of a pantheism, the, the god of all, the god of all. And they called the place Panea, but more recently, quite recently actually, uh, because of the reach of the Roman Empire, uh, Philip, Herod Philip, had renamed the, the place. Um, and and he, re- he named it Caesarea Philippi. So Caesarea, that's in honor of Augustus Caesar. And then Philippi is in honor of Philip. Um, now, if, if, if he decided to call it Philippi Caesarea, he would have got his head cut off. Um, and so he probably wasn't terribly tempted to do that. Uh, Caesarea Philippi, you honor Caesar first, and then you honor yourself as a devoted servant of Caesar and, and, and that's where they're going. They're on the way there. But interestingly enough, in this context, a number of commentators, and I think they're right. Um, uh, some would say, well, this kind of thing is, is questionable. Well, it is questionable, which is why commentators question it and they talk about it. But it's the significance of the word way. Uh, The word way in Mark's gospel, the word way in the New Testament, generally means one of two things. You refer to uh, the most on the surface, right? They're on their way to Caesarea Philippi. They're on a road that leads to Caesarea Philippi. If somebody were to ask, if you know Sioux Falls at all, and somebody were to ask you, from where we are right now at First Evangelical Free Church, what would be the quickest way to get to Cliff Avenue. Well, from here, it's a really simple answer. 69th Street. Uh, we're on it. So 69th Street would be the quickest way to get to Cliff Avenue. But we also often hear in our culture discussions of something like the American way. Um, the American way. So now you've moved from a very concrete, literalistic definition of way, 69th Street, to a very broad, metaphorical, sort of complicated, involved statement. The way. uh, The American way. Well, there's good reason to believe that you might, that Mark might be wanting you to take this in those two Ways. And the reason is because the paragraph that comes next after this, right? So they're on the way to Caesarea Philippi. 
But as part of getting to Caesarea Philippi, one of the things that Jesus is going to say to the disciples is this, and we'll see it next week. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So that they're on the way to Caesarea Philippi, but they're also on the way of the cross. Uh, and he's, about, he's starting to explain to them that they're on the way of the cross. Well, they're on the way to Caesarea Philippi. And a number of commentators think, well, I think you're supposed to pick up on that and sort of fold those two senses of the word way on top of each other. Because the question refers primarily to the second one. It's a question that's going to trip Peter up. Next paragraph. Namely, so who do you say that I am? And Peter assumes that his answer means, when he says, you're the Christ. That you couldn't possibly be on the way of the cross and be the Christ at the same time, as we'll see. That's what Peter assumed. You couldn't possibly. Um, but Mark is pointing out, well, but Peter, Peter was wrong. So who do men say that I am? Um, and they told him, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, Now, these answers are all coming from the kind of people that the disciples would have run into as being part of Jesus' ministry team, right? So these are the answers that come from people who have seen Jesus feed 5,000 people with a boy's lunch. Or they've seen Jesus give sight to a blind person. Or they've seen Jesus heal a lame man, and possibly they would also include people who have heard from reliable sources that Jesus did those things. And so that raised the question, so how is he doing these kinds of things? Right? And you, and, and here's what they would have been hearing from, from the crowd, right? There's a game show that used to have the line in it, survey says... See? And that's what they're doing here. So, who is Jesus? Survey says, who do the people say? Number one answer, John the Baptist. Number two answer, Elijah. Number three answer, non-committal, weak-kneed, vague, one of the prophets possibly. But number one answer, John the Baptist. Well, why, what in the world is going on there? John the Baptist. They were contemporaries. Uh, they walked past each other. Well, 
we've always been prone to superstition. They probably don't literally mean that John the Baptist is bodily raised from the dead after he got his head cut off, but they do mean this. The spirit of John the Baptist has come back after Herod murdered him, and what was done to John the Baptist is the best explanation we can come up with as to how Jesus is doing all these powerful things. Now we know from the Gospel accounts that even Herod himself, and by the way, Herod is the one that had John the Baptist's head cut off at his own birthday party. Herod himself is found, according to the Gospels, going back and forth on the question because he's heard this same research. People are saying there's this guy out there doing miraculous things, calls himself Jesus, but we think it's really the spirit of John come back with power after you, Herod, murdered him. Now in Luke 9, 7 and 9, we get, I think, what you might call Herod's assessment of that answer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a sunny day. So at 3 o'clock on the afternoon in a sunny day, here's how Herod responds to that. Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some. John had been raised from the dead by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. And Herod said, I beheaded John. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he's curious. So he thought to see him. Now Matthew 14, 1 and 2, I think, reflects what Herod's answer started to be tempted to be at 3 o'clock in the morning when you wake up in the middle of the night all by yourself and you had Herod's and you had John the Baptist's head chopped off at your birthday party. Here's how Matthew puts it on Herod. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these powers are working in him. That's what Shakespeare meant in his little phrase in Hamlet, right? Conscience makes cowards of us all. Conscience makes cowards of us all. The Elijah theory is pretty straightforward. Elijah did not die in any conventional sense. He's taken up in a chariot 
the people of the time, you remember, assumed that his body was just tossed somewhere, but nobody ever found it. And so what, you know, what do you really make of Elijah? And the other thing about Elijah, of course, is that he did miraculous miracles within his ministry. And so there's a certain sense that comes, and now I think this is Elijah's, especially since there's a prophecy in, in um, uh, Malachi about Elijah coming at the end of the age. And then, as I say, the more weak need, um, well, I don't know. One of the prophets, hard to say, um, But think again, think, what, what's our cultural answer to the question? Who do people say Jesus is today? Who do people say that he is? Um, most recent uh, thinking in public interview that uh, Dr. Al Mohler has done is with a, a scholar who is uh, a sociologist but he founded an apartment uh, at a university. He's a sociologist of secular st- secularity. Uh, and his career is about the advancement of, of the rise of the secular, uh, in, uh, especially in Europe and uh, in America and the developed world. And, uh, and more and more, and his point is, more and more people more and more people are sure of this when it comes to Jesus. He's not in any sense supernatural because there's no such thing. There's no such thing as the supernatural. There's no such thing as God. Officially, no doubt about it, from surveys, our culture, more and more people are becoming more and more secular in their outlook. And so who do they say Jesus is? Well, he's uh, he's a first century Jewish teacher. Uh, He accomplished some good things. As long as you don't get too carried away about him, it's important to remember that he got sexual ethics altogether wrong. And there would be absolutely absurd to try to pattern your life after the teachings of somebody who was teaching 2,000 years ago. But he was probably a nice person overall. And so there you have it. There you have it. That's the kind of answer that our culture presently gives. We'll come back to the relevance of that answer in in a few minutes. Secondly, his more personalized, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. Now, Mark has presupposed that to be the right answer from the beginning, right? From the beginning of his gospel. It's right there in the first verse of Mark's gospel. Here's how the gospel of Mark opened. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, That is Peter's answer. Jesus is the Christ. 
He is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. And in in Matthew's parallel, which fleshes the thing out in several ways at the same time, he includes the second thing that John put in, uh, that Mark put in the uh, opening verse of his gospel. And here's how it's put. It's already read by uh, worship team this morning, Matthew 16, 15 to 17. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, that's how Mark opened his gospel. Christ, the Son of God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you your father who is in heaven. So Peter's answer is, who are you? He, well, he's the Christ. He is the Son of God. And in the Matthew account, Jesus comes back and says, you know, Peter, he's saying this to all the disciples, but Peter's the one who answered. So you know, Peter, that is a grace-aided, supernatural Aided answer to the question. Uh, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What he means by flesh and blood did not reveal that to you is not, he's not contrasting here the material part of man with the immaterial part of man, body, soul, anything like that. No, no. Flesh and blood here simply means as a full-fledged human being without God's aid. So you didn't come up with that just by being a human being in first century Palestine. That's not how that happened to you. It wasn't merely a discovery you made on your own. It wasn't simply a series of your own choices without any outside supernatural help. It wasn't that. Rather, your answer is the product of divine help in particular. My Father in heaven revealed that to you. Now think about that for a moment, because I think in the New Testament we are taught elsewhere as well, every Christian is to think about their own experience in the same way. If you know, if, if you know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you did not figure that out on your own. Even if you were born in a Christian home like I was, you know, you're not supposed to say to yourself, well, you know, I thank my lucky stars, you know, that I was born to Marvin and Lorraine Anderson and we had devotions every night. And so, of course, of course, I came to embrace Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God, firmly. 
I'm just telling you, there's millions of people with that same story, and they didn't embrace it. Millions. Millions and millions. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. You weren't left to yourself on this one, Peter. But my Father in heaven. I love how John makes the same point over in John chapter 6, verses 41 to 44. John 6, 41 to 44. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Majority answer of people who grew up with Jesus. Majority Majority answer of first century Judeans. He is no big deal, and we know it. We know his mother and father. We know his brothers. We know where he comes from. Give me a break. The bread of heaven. And we don't read then, and Jesus said to those guys, Come on, you guys, give me, give me a second chance. No, he doesn't say anything like that. He says... Instead, no need to be grumbling. No need to be grumbling. I know this. I understand. You see, here's how it works. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And if the Father draws you, I'll raise you up on the last day. That's what he says. You really can't make John 6.44 say anything different than that. And again, if you're a Christian, that's your, that's your story. Both the first part of it and the second. If you're really a Christian, you became a Christian because he drew you. And in the end, inevitably, he will raise you up on the last day. That's how it's going to be. Um, Now, if you say, well, but I really made a decision. Of course you did. Of course you did. But be careful that you don't try to say, I made a purely flesh and blood decision. And contradict what the Spirit says in Matthew and John, which is no, no, you made you made a flesh and blood decision, but it was not a purely flesh and blood decision. It was a heavily grace aided, guided flesh and blood decision, which means that Mark wouldn't refer to it as a flesh and blood decision anymore. That's his point. He's contrasting a purely flesh and blood decision with a grace-aided decision. And Peter's answer is understood to be definitely, decisively, 
grace aided. So, third final question. So what does this, why does this question matter so much? Uh, why does this question matter so much? Uh, our little paragraph closes with a strange little piece of text. It's, uh, it's, it's you know, uh, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, why would he do that? This, this has happened repeatedly in the Gospels. Why would he strictly charge them not, well, two reasons, really. Two interrelated reasons. Number one, because the people so misunderstand the concept of Messiah that to tell them definitively that Jesus is the Messiah in a very short period of time will lead them, you'll lead them away from the claim decisively. Uh, because they think that if he's the Messiah... He's on the way to kicking Rome to the curb and ruling supreme. When actually the Messiah is on the way of the cross. And if you don't get that, and you're told, oh no, he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah. And you think, all right, great, he's about to kick Rome to the curb and be reigning. And then when he goes to the cross, what will you say? Whoa, they were wrong about that. He couldn't have possibly been the Messiah. So don't tell them, because right now their conception of Messiah is a mile off. And then the second reason for them not to tell them is, and you guys don't get it either. As Peter is about to prove in the very next paragraph, even though technically he gets the answer right. You are the Christ. When Jesus says, yeah, let me tell you, I am the Christ on the way of the cross. And Peter's response to that in the next paragraph will be, never, no, 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 cannot be. And then what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. In other words, he says to him, you're, Peter, you're satanically twisting the right answer around now without realizing it. So the, the audience isn't ready to hear, and Peter's not ready to tell them, and none of the others are in any better shape than Peter. And so he says, don't, don't tell anyone. Because uh, you don't really get it yet yourselves, so you've got the answer right technically. Uh, you are, and you'll get it right. Um, but, and they're not ready to hear it anyways. They'll only be ready to really understand when you can tell them, in the light of the cross and resurrection, as you understand it. But why it's so important, and so important to the whole world, as much today as it was then. And, and what the New Testament says here is almost a, an unbelievably hateful thing to say in American cultural terms. Right? It's real straightforward. Bible stuff, but 
It's hateful, and it's going to be understood to be increasingly hateful, and it's going to be trumpeted as increasingly hateful in our culture as time goes forward, and effectively so, because it'll be so easy to do. Uh, But Acts 4.12, just think of, this is Peter again. This is Peter now, as he understands who Jesus really is in the light of the cross and the resurrection, and he's preaching in Acts chapter 4, and here's what he says. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. There is no other name given among men by which you must be saved. You either bow the knee to Jesus or you're spiritually a goner. Well, you don't get to say that in America. No. No, no, no. That is a hateful thing to say. That's a, oh, that, that is just ridiculous. Well, it's what the New Testament has been saying for 2,000 years. It simply has. Or, as it's put in by Jesus himself, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, like 85% of you are more sophisticated on the Internet than I am. No, no, that's 97% of you. 97, probably 97.8% percent of you are more sophisticated on the internet than I am on a computer generally than I am. Um, there's a guy that's become kind of popular on the internet and not, he's a kind of a surprising internet star in that he's a, he's a mathematician from Oxford. His name is John Lennox. Um, to American culture the connection would be, those of you, so we, we all know here the you know, the, the, the hymn, the, the recent hymn, In Christ Alone. Well, that's Keith and Kristen Getty. Well, John Lennox is Kristen Getty's uncle. Uh, he's Kristen Getty's uncle. He's 80 years old, and, um, and he's been doing apologetics on the Internet. In a recent interview he did with a internet, conservative Internet superstar, Jordan Peterson, um, they, they wander into John 14, 6. It's an interesting interview to watch in that Jordan Peterson has a tendency to try to make himself profound, as, sound as profound as possible. And John Lennox just keeps wandering into profound things that he says. Uh, he can't be anything but that. And so in, in this interview... Uh, John Lennox brings up John 14, 6, and he says, you know, that's really something, you know, to think about when you read, I am the way, the truth, and the truth and the life. He says, you know, that statement within the Gospel of John, that's really an extraordinary statement. Because, I mean, for Jesus to say that he's the truth, he, does, he clearly doesn't mean that he just says true things. He says, you know, the gospel opens by, by calling him the word 
And he says, you know, interestingly enough, the biggest word that we know about in all of existence is the DNA molecule. He says, the most complicated language that we know of is, he said, that's my world, right? It's mathematics. It's what I've devoted my life to. He said, Jesus is the truth. He says, oh, he's the truth behind DNA. He's the truth behind mathematics. I mean, it says right there in John 1, 3, that apart from him was not anything made that was made. Well, mathematics and DNA molecules were both made. They're Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. How big is Jesus according to that conception of things? Apart from him, not one thing came into being that has come into being. No way to know God apart from him. So given that, how large does the question turn out to be? Who do men say that I am? Oh, there's no bigger question that you could possibly ask anybody. And then as it's turned on us, and I want you to turn it on yourself and ask it to yourself quite, who do you say? Who do you say with your life, with your heart, with your mind, with your decisions, with your allegiances, who do you say that Jesus is? Well, he's the way. He's the truth. And he's the life. And no one No one can possibly ever be right with God apart from him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your words to us in Matthew, Mark, John that we've been looking at, Acts, Lord, we officially as a congregation acknowledge that you are the Christ, Son of God. All of our hope of forgiveness and life is wrapped up in what you have done for us through the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, your everlasting Son, second person of the triune Godhead as we read the Bible. Lord, enable us to stand in awe of being among those that have come to recognize this truth. And may we be transformed by it And may we be bold to speak it even in a culture that has no respect for the answer, even as it's the only hope 
this culture has, anyone in it has, is the recognition of who Jesus is by grace. We ask for this to be given in Jesus' name. Amen.